All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left podcast. I'm Mike, and I'm here again with Cosper, Ward, Garen. Uh, we don't have Cosper with this. Wait, I said Cosper, and I didn't say Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! This all is right. how we do Third the motherfucking the thing. You can tell we're pros. We've been at this for all of two months now. Uh, ours is a clusterfuck. It's it's all good. You guys are great. Definitely, we got like a bunch of uh, stuff that's going in the cold open for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. That's one of my favorite parts that. is putting that I, together. Yeah, I love that we throw all that into the in- like right at the intro. I love it so much. It's my favorite part of the podcast. It's got to confuse the fucking hell out of like first time listeners who are like, okay, let's, oh, yeah, let's, for listen, sure. let's listen to this Reagan episode. And they're like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, why are they talking about <laughs> <in> the shower? <laughs> yeah, jacking off in the shower. <laughs> oh my God. Did this guy just say that he's too stupid to argue with himself? <laughs> am I really am I really about to listen to two hours of this? Why did I fucking comment on this fucking oh, I'm just I should just delete it. It's fucking Are you on Instagram? Reddit? Yeah. Uh, so what'd um, you do? Fucking uh literally Noam Chomsky. Like the minute I made that post saying like China is great. He makes another one like China's bad. Everybody oh should hate China. God. Fuck China. Oh, and I'm just like, you fucking morons. Like, how are you? Like, and all <laughs> I did was say, like, yeah, all these billion people in China who study Marxism in high school, they definitely don't know what Marxism is. We should all educate them from our position in the West as indoctrinated capitalists. Like, we definitely know better than them. And now all <laughs> yeah. his anarchist fans are just like, oh, we're billionaires, billionaires, and Uyghurs. Oh, my yogurts. Like, fuck you. <laughs> Oh yeah, I love it. Dude, I'm getting so much hate from like the pro China shit I've been posting recently. <laughs> I just leave it in the message request. Because oh. like I'm way more active on my story than I am like my actual like post. Yeah, yeah. Same. And so like all that shit goes to like my message request. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not even mm-hmm. fucking wasting my time. Same, same. Cool shit. Yeah, no, that I actually really like that page. It's and it's a weird thing, you know, when you create an account called literally Noam Chomsky, you've really fucking solidified the fact that you will never advance your political digest or political views. Noam Chomsky today, where he's like such a fucking liberal, it's not Just funny. Fucking live, man. Yeah, like, like old, old Noam Chomsky would roast the fuck out of this old motherfucker. I mean, young yeah. Noam Chomsky would roast the fuck out of. This this old motherfucker and just disembowel him in a in a debate if you put old and uh young Noam Chomsky in the same room but even more importantly take some some of the guys like uh Parenti that basically wrote the book that Noam Chomsky basically regurgitated as uh, yeah. manufacturing consent but what about guys like literally Noam Chomsky on Instagram how does he sit down with a Parenti book? What does he do when he sits down with, you know, arguably just a more intellectual leftist who could have Noam Chomsky for breakfast? Do you understand why we make fun of Ancoms now? They don't do that. They don't read theory. They don't like yeah. engage with any of that stuff. Then get get too deep into it. They just call everybody that's left of them tankies. Oh god! And then they just write it off at that. Like, sadly, most of those board games, you really have to be in person to play them. But like Catan, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's like an online version of Catan, which is a absolute blast. It's a classic. I mean, oh, it's so good. Um, but I got like Terraforming Mars, which is I haven't even played yet. My girlfriend got it for me for uh, my birthday back in October. And it's 
basically you're Elon Musk. <laughs> you just go to mm -hmm. you go to Mars and you just uh, basically colonize it. You you commit a colonialism and just you coo whoever you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, Deal with it. You coo whoever you want. You're going against all these different corporations because apparently like Pepsi is a government now, <laughs> and it looks really fun, really fucked up, but really fun. And it, it's funny, like That'd people be a good one to do. People make these games, and it's so like colonialism and capitalism and all of these ideologies are so intertwined into who we mm -hmm. are as human beings at this point that people don't even like they can't even make games that don't also incorporate that shit like i can't tell you the last time i i've played a game that i was not trying to win capitalism yeah oh yeah for sure oh man it made me think uh real quick uh something that it was uh cosper brought up on the last episode he was talking like like if there's just like full blown capitalism, like eventually there'd be privatization of the state. And I was like, mm -hmm. just thinking, I was like, man, like what corporation would totally take over America? Like just trying to think. <laughs> I'm like, man, if I did, if I wanted any corporation to take it over and like turn it into some like corporate fascist regime, I'm like, at least Disney, because it'd be Ooh. colorful. <laughs> No. Like, like if out of all the fascist, terrible corporate regimes, like at least Disney would be colorful. But it's already the case. It's just fucking yeah. J.P. Morgan and like you fucking name it. It's all of these fucking oligarchs literally control everything. I can't go buy a fucking. Oh, yeah, I was just hypotheticalizing like a singular company taking over. Like when they're outward about it. Like, but what's the yeah. difference? JP Morgan has what, 20 to 40 million stocks in basically every company under the planet. Like they, in a sense, own every fucking company in every industry. Yeah. Like they get to hand select board members that choose the direction of all these companies that they supposedly have nothing to do with like jp morgan is literally choosing like directions you know as an example they they have this company that's completely outside of their industry and they choose the executives that are going to sit on this board and are going to help influence the vote because they're flexing an insane amount of stock in this company that basically just turns it into the exact opposite of democracy, you know, they, they have an insane amount of voting power. They install their board members, which then in turn gives them more power in the company. And then at the same time, they're playing the other side of the fence, fucking lobbying the politicians we have and sometimes finding their ways into fucking uh, cabinet positions. Who was it? Uh, Bush, towards the end of his second term, he put someone from... God, who's, who's that big famous banker? I think it was from J.P. Morgan. Right? Alan Greenspan. Is, is that who it was? He put in charge of like uh, figuring out the housing crisis. Like one of the guys who played an oh, integral Jesus role in causing the housing crisis. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it, It's like not only do they. And then Obama came in and just did the exact same thing. Like. <laughs> exactly. He fucking bailed out the people that did it. You know, he could have easily been like, well, you know what? You guys fucked up. Let's wipe away all this debt. The Americans get to start over. Imagine how beautiful our country would have been if we just did, did not owe these fucking assholes who made up this whole concept of this incredibly tyrannical debt if we just said you're fucked we don't care i mean the idea that some people out here who want to go like you know get a car are paying 23 percent interest on this vehicle which represents like a fraction of one percent risk for this bank who yeah. came up with the idea that that's okay? 
Like even if they the for- yeah, like even if they forfeited, does that really represent a twenty three percent risk for you when you apply it across the whole scale? Like, why is no one auditing it and saying, "Hey, twenty three percent of your people do not walk away and say fuck you"? Because a, we, I mean, you can prosecute them, uh, but there's like. There's like a hundred different ways they can recoup it. They can sell the debt at the end of the day. It, I, anyway, not to go on a rant, but the whole concept of debt and these like insane amounts they can charge blows my fucking mind that it, we're not just shooting these bastards in the head. Well, that's actually what it comes down to. Like you know, while you were saying that, I was thinking about guillotines and mob rule and everything (laughs) and it was literally my favorite term when you talk to anybody who's a capitalist and they talk to you about economics 101 like the basic economics man like they will eventually get to a point where they say well that's what the market will bear like when you bring up any of these situations that are obviously (laughs) just perverse incentives they are totally lopsided in the favor of the people who already have the money just so they can make more of it at the expense of the people who already don't have any then they just say well that's that's what the market will bear which is just a cool cute term for that's what people will put up with. Yeah. That's like what bankers know they can get away with before the pitchforks show up at their door. Yeah. And they know that they can get away with a shit ton now because nobody can fucking do a thing or is yeah. at least not willing to, at least not in this country. Like in France, they'll actually get out in the streets and burn shit down. But over here, nah, we just bend over and take it. Yeah. Yeah, and- we pussy as fuck over here. Hey, Jaren. Look hey, up, Jaren's man. here. Look at that mustache. Yo, timing, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, Blaine's freaked out about it. <laughs> <laughs> but if she, thought, she was like, what, what have you done? If she doesn't want to take a ride on it, I will, sir. Hey, thank you, brother. You cannot edit that out. Come on. <laughs> All right. We, oh, it's good to see your face, buddy. Yeah, I'm excited to be back uh, after two week. Uh, vacation to the foreign country of Florida, which is absolutely batshit <laughs> crazy. Like they just straight up don't believe it's real down there. And I'm in Georgia, oh and like god, like dude. Georgia is already not giving a fuck. But Florida, oh my god, it's like their responsibility under God to go out there and try to contract COVID. Ugh. Well, you know, if if you get it, it's God's will, dude. <laughs> I have never seen so many ads into my mailbox as this election. Well, I mean, arguably, it's a it's a pretty big deal, you know, to have a runoff that will decide the control of the Senate. Um, I don't remember the last time it's happened, if it has happened. Um, so I, they are dumping just an insane amount of money into it. Now, I've got, oh, man, I've, I've got a couple of them that are great. Like, look at this one. This is Warnock with uh, Castro, and they're basically just—they're they're basically. Just, oh my god! Yes, uh, it's brilliant. I love it. It's gonna stay on my wall forever. Oh. <laughs> basically, they're just like oh, comparing him to man. Castro, or something. and that's like the ugliest picture of Fidel too. Like, yeah. I know. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering why you had it directly <laughs> under the like the communist McDonald's. Oh, yeah, I was that, like, why is it on the same wall <laughs> as the People's <laughs> McDonald's? Exactly. <laughs> Our McDonald's. No, we're all going to Parlor. Parlor. <laughs> What's the new Parlor? Such a dumpster fire. There's a new God, one. There's a, yeah, there's a new one now. It's called like Hangout or something, right? Oh, I saw that. Someone yeah. posted this shit today on Facebook. Yeah, I don't exactly know much about it, but I know like all these people are are sending out invites to join Hangout. It's like some new social media that's uh, still in that like invite only phase. But it it just yeah. it, it, 
it looks stupid. I mean, all social media is already stupid. Like, why are you trying to fix what isn't inherently bad? It's just four channel oh. with better profile pictures. That's all it is. When you're trying to get a new social network going, the the first thing you want to do is switch every like six weeks or so. You want to give it zero time <laughs> yes. to like take a hold and then just start up a new one already. That's that's a really good way to get it to take off. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. By the time you establish your base, fucking move them. Yep. <laughs> Does anyone remember Ello like way back in the day? I mean, not way back, oh God, but like dude. four years ago or something, there was one called Ello that came out. And as soon as it came out, I made a point to like make uh, all the handles for all the big companies. <laughs> and then I was going to like, black, <laughs> I was going to blackmail them for the handles. And I'm like, oh, this is goddamn genius. I'm so damn smart. And then, and then they just took all the handles from me. They're like, sir, you, you are not Verizon Network. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast, everybody. I'm Mike, and I'm here with Sterling, Ward, and Jaron. We don't have Cosper here with us this week, but instead we have a couple of special guests from the Dixieland of the Proletariat Podcast. We have Nelson and Tommy. Why don't you guys say hi? Hello. Hey, what's up? Welcome, guys. So you can find them on all the podcast platforms. They're Dixieland of the Proletariat. Find them on Facebook as well. So we will be talking tonight about anti-fascism <laughs> and why Antifa are not the real fascists. I'm sure if you're a leftist online or even if you're a liberal and you try to defend the anti-fascist cause in any way, you have probably come across the copy-paste from Breitbart arguments that Antifa are the real fascists because they are brown shirts in disguise in some way. So we'll be going over all the talking points that uh, you typically hear online and debunking them one by one. But uh, let's see if we can have a good time while we're doing it. The main point that we'll be getting across is that all of this talk about Antifa being the real fascist is based on false equivalence. You're equivocating the left and the right as if they are the same thing. And from a liberal mindset, that may even be the case. I mean, all extremism is bad if you are already an advocate of the status quo, if you're already in a privileged position. Yeah, I could understand why you would say that people who are protesting against this are just as bad as the people who want genocide. But it's an inherently flawed position, but also just enables the fascists. That's the, probably the biggest thing is to get right down to is the horseshoe theory. To begin with, there are diametrically opposite goals of the far left and the far right. The far right, they want to genocide people, Jews, people of color, trans and gay people. They want to kill these people. There is no way that you can exist and fascists will be happy. They will not stop until they can put you in camps, until they can just exterminate you entirely. Whereas on the far left, even the authoritarian left, as I am, I would like to have authoritarianism, but I would like to have it so that we can protect those people, people who are not able to protect themselves from the fascists. That's the point of authoritarian leftism. So to even equate the two is just a lie. And anybody who does this is either intentionally being dishonest or they are bought into the lie and they don't realize that they are repeating fascist rhetoric and helping the fascists push their message out onto the public. And I think that also gets into talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat versus the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And I think if anything, we are already living in the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. I don't think it's yes. a stretch to anyone who would be listening to us to say that 
the people who are running things right now are the moneyed elites who have all the power and control over our system. Spoilers. <laughs> Which the opposite that we would like is to have the dictatorship run by the workers, democratically controlled and run by the people who actually produce the material goods. Did you have something, Jaron? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about the right saying that fascism can exist on the, the right or the left. And I think that there's a really important economic facet to this. Like when we think of fascists, we think of the boot pressing your head against the cement, right? But the violent symptoms of fascism are a result of the economics of fascism, namely that a fascist economy is where private interests determine public works and cartels of private interests exist that work hand in hand with government. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, I encourage you to look closer at Washington, D.C. The overt violence and the symptoms that come from that economic system are what we notice because they're more sensational. But that's something that's very, very important to see because it very obviously illustrates that no, fascism does not exist on the left. On its face, anti-fascism cannot exist without fascism. Fair. There has to be that in place in order for there to be an anti-fascist. And I think through outlets and media and Facebook and through Donald Trump, Antifa has become personified. And rather it being discussed as an idea, it's discussed as rather a group or a specific person or specific people. And it's not. And even if you ask certain people, they can't even tell you what Antifa stands for. They don't know. <laughs> it's just the label to people that are opposed to them, which it happens to be fascist. It's fair. It's yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a really good point. And I didn't even think of that when I was thinking of this episode. You cannot have anti-fascism without fascists. If the fascists just stopped, if they all just shut up and went away, anti-fascism would cease to exist. There would be no protest. There would be no activists. It just would not be a thing. The only case you could make to say that anti-fascism could exist without fascism is to say that there would be an authoritarian communist regime. If we had an authoritarian communist country, like the ideal situation that I'm imagining, I guess you could say that that is an anti-fascist government because they would be squashing the forces of fascism wherever they arise. But it wouldn't be anti-fascism. It would just be a dictatorship of the proletariat. Also to that same effect, the same thing applies to the fascists themselves. A lot of people think that, oh, fascism, you have to be like this big government. You have to be like this dictator. People have a misconstrued idea of what a fascism is. And I'm glad that you guys are talking yes. about that because there needs to be a distinct separation between what fascism is and how what we are living in or what we were living in dictated as fascism. I mean, it's still going to perpetrate under Biden. So let's not kid ourselves. Yep. But just the act of sending in unmarked, unbadged troops in, in Portland without government consent, snatching up people, locking them up, that is fascism. Just to piggyback off what Tommy said, like a historical look at America, like we have had police black bagging people and throwing them in unmarked vans, but there's a really good point that was brought up on another YouTube channel that I, I watch that uh, fascism has always been in the United States. It's just never technically really affected white people on the extent that it's affected black indigenous people of color, right? So like the Klan, I would say that the Klan is on the same level as like brown shirts, right? It's so, like they're mm -hmm. the same exact thing. They perpetuate this racist violence. Certainly nationalists or ultra nationalists. Yeah, and like, and I'm in grad school, so I obviously have to read a lot. So like I'm reading a bunch of stuff historical takes on Nazi Germany, uh, it comes out a lot that Nazism and fascism is a middle-class Protestant ideology. 
So mm-hmm. it's, it steals all this stuff from working class ideology, like the Hitler youth camps, like the whole idea of being each other's comrades. The far right steals that from the left because they can't come up with anything on their own because they're stupid. So yep. it goes back to people not being able to tie down what fascism is because it is, to me, it's a fluid ideology because you have the National Socialists like racist aspects in Germany. Then you also have like the benevolent fascists of like Franco and Mussolini and Salazar. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be coming back into the mainstream, especially in Europe, kind of a a rejection of EU style liberalism. And you see that in America with the rise of Trump. And so like when people are like, oh, Trump's Hitler, Trump's blah, blah, blah. I was like, Trump's Mussolini, hands down, like a Franco Mussolini style like fascist. Yeah. And that's scary because then like you can't the use of dog whistles and all this stuff, like he's not gonna outright say like what we think of racism in America, but he's going to use those dog whistles that politicians have used for so long to creep fascism slowly into the mainstream. We're like it's always been there. We see it with union busting, the Pinkertons, we see it with the Klan, we see it with US troops, the anniversary of wounded knee was today. You see it throughout history, but it's creeping up and finally people are taking notice, but then it goes to what we're saying is like, oh, the right's like, oh, the left's the real fascist. Now, I read this book, The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic by Benjamin Hett. Basically, it lays out everything the right is saying now about anti-fascists today is what the brown shirt said about the anti-fascists back then. They're like, yeah. oh, they're the ones that are disrupting our meetings. They're the ones that are attacking us. When like the brown shirts will instigate it, the police will come and bust everything up. But then the anti-fascists will start fighting with the police and the brown shirts have to come in and clean up everything. And then Hitler and the brown shirts will be like, oh, look, the state and the cops, they can't protect you from the communists. They can't protect you from the fascists. They can't protect you from these thugs. So we have to do it. And that's how brown shirts and that aspect of fascism became acceptable because people feared communist takeover. They feared like, oh, no, we're going to return to a Bolshevik style revolution. The fascists perpetuate that fear. And so when the middle class Protestants got all, ah, they voted in the Nazis. And you kind of see that here. It's just like when the middle class Protestant white folks get scared, they vote in fascism. I would say also just getting on that point of defining fascism, I think we may unintentionally have to define fascism while we also define anti-fascism. And I think one of the best recent examples I've heard of, I'm always recommending Rev Left Radio, probably one of the best leftist podcasts out there, but he recently just did a series of episodes on Blood in My Eye by George Jackson, which was a book about fascism in America. And I think he gave probably the best definition of fascism to work with for our modern era. One of the distinctions he made was there are several stages of fascism where fascism is either in power or out of power. And right now, we are dead set in the era of fascism out of power as far as being officially the regime. When he describes what fascism out of power looks like, it is exactly like America today, where you see the dog whistles, you see the way that it behaves, and it still gets a lot of the things that it wants as far as a movement is concerned, but you can still plausibly deny that you are living in fascism. But in reality, you are still locking up people of color, you are still locking up marginalized people or just committing atrocities against them. You just may or may not recognize that it is a legitimized part of the state itself. What's up, Darren? Both of those points are really awesome. And I love especially thinking of fascism as being fluid, because yes, I also believe that, yeah, America has been innately fascist from its inception. But at the same time, I'm just going to go for the jugular here. Fucking liberals are enabling fascism. Yes. And they do that whether or not they mean to. 
Yeah. But case in point here, you know, even though we have these pushes to have more people in government that are black, that are trans, that are women, that are indigenous, all of these things, we're not seeing overt pushes for a systemic overhaul of the gears of fascism. So I think, you know, even the drug war is a perfect example of this. You know, civil rights happened and we're supposed to have equality for American blacks. And then immediately the drug war comes in, takes hold, and we have still this underclass that is predominantly black and Hispanic. But now they're not being held in servitude for simply the color of their skin, but rather because there is a law that said that they should be there. And that license is liberalism to me, to make a law that ostracizes people, but not necessarily, quote unquote, on the basis of their ethnicity, religion, etc. It's still fascism. Yeah. I agree. And before we dive too deep, just for our listeners sake, what this episode is really about is we are going to dive into what people consider, quote unquote, Antifa, whether it's a group or an idea and what fascism is in general. We're going to compare the two and go through a few historical differences. I've got some vocabulary I'm going to go over. Is there anything you want to add to that, Mike, before we get too deep into theories? No, that sounds good. Okay. Now, before we go on, just because we are kind of doing definitions up front, and that's kind of what I prepared, would you like me to go through a few of these definitions just to get that out of the way? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So right off the bat is fascism in general. So I've I've prepared some definitions and even some perspective on some terminology just related to this topic. So fascism, a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and of the economy. I have a few critiques on that definition. One, saying authoritarianism, I I also, I'm going to get into the definition of authoritarianism and I don't really agree with the way certain people define authoritarianism, but I think fascism in general, what it's implying here is, A, it's a right-wing ideology, plain and simple. Fascism is not a left-wing ideology. It's not an anything-else ideology. You are basically either far-right or opposed to that, and that's basically where the big difference between fascism and anti-fascism comes from is people think of fascism as far right and anti-fascism as far left. No, you could still be right. You could be a liberal. You could be a conservative. You could be a libertarian. You could be a lot of things and be against fascism. Fascism is in that very fucking corner if we are to suppose that the political compass is in any way accurate. But let's pretend and make believe for a moment. Fascism is all the way in the top right corner in that blue section and basically everything else if it isn't anti-fascist, has the opportunity to be anti-fascist. And I think that's very important to note. So on authoritarianism is a way of governing that values order and control over personal freedom. So far, I'm okay with this. A government run by authoritarianism is usually headed by a dictator. I actually disagree with that part. Vocabulary.com then gives the exact same following definition for authoritarianism and quote-unquote Stalinism, a form of government in which the ruler is an absolute dictator. (laughs) Jesus Christ, it makes me cringe. First of all, and I've prepared a little vocabulary uh, for Soviet democracy as well to show that that definition is in no way what actually happened under Stalin. And 
we'll approach Stalin on another episode. So liberals, please just bear with us for a moment. <laughs> I, I promise we're not jumping too hard on Stalin's dick this episode, but we are going to show you that uh, some of the things that they consider authoritarianism and then they compare to Stalinism is not what was actually happening under the USSR under Stalin's rule. It's funny you mentioned authoritarianism. I just got out of an international relations seminar, mm-hmm. and I, basically we were reading. It was really hard to have to bite my tongue because my professor was also the dean, so I didn't want to like go too hard <laughs> and like go against what he was saying. But basically, we were reading this one article that tried to break down the differences between a liberal democracy, authoritarian, and then totalitarian governments, right? Yeah. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking that when I hear people say like authoritarianism or totalitarianism, to me, it's always been Western countries use that as a dog whistle for anti-communism. Yeah. It's always been America or Western Europe saying, oh, so-and-so is authoritarian, so they're bad. And they try to like break it down to authoritarian is basically a dictator, right? Like you said, that rules yeah. without any type of ideology, like a Pinochet type character. Yeah, He's exactly. an authoritarian figure, right? And they broke it down and Stalin in the Soviet Union was totalitarian because there was an ideology and a party behind. It. So to me, I wanted to like just throw my book up and say this is bullshit because like, <laughs> like you said, you break down like Soviet democracy and the uh, old pros around table had a great episode on uh, social democracy. Yes, it's really, they I think did. it's still up. And if you can read the, the PDFs. It's episode 37. The, 37. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I've listened to it like four times. <laughs> Hell yeah, same. I referenced the uh, PDFs on Stalin's push for democracy in the Soviet Union in my papers. I was just shameless. I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> but yeah, it's these words that liberals and like conservative people like come up with. It just reminds me of what David Harvey was saying, but like what Mark says, in the, I can't pronounce it, the Grunus League, the, the Grunus, whatever it is, one of his books. Uh, capital just invents barriers that it has to circumvent, can't like fix its own problems. Yeah. So it's like liberals like trying to like find a boogeyman. It's just like, oh, they're authoritarian. Oh, they're totalitarian. Yeah. Like, after the fall of the Soviet Union, they had to come up with like terms to scare people. And it's just utter bullshit. Yes. And nine times out of ten, they just use it to justify the democratic peace theory and to go and invade fucking countries for their resources. Like it's just utterly mm-hmm. bullshit. Yeah. On authoritarianism, one thing I would like to add to that, and I'd like to get you guys' critique on this. My opinion on authoritarianism is the fact that the law and authority supersedes what they said was personal freedom, which actually just means doing whatever the fuck you want. We live in a country where you can't just do whatever the fuck you want. We live in a country with authority, with rule of law. The U.S. is inherently authoritarian. In fact, almost every country on this planet is almost every civilization since the beginning of humanity has been inherently more authoritarian than it has been the exact opposite which is do whatever the goddamn fuck you want to at any time if you're poor oh yeah exactly if you're poor if you're rich <laughs> the u.s is the most free place you could possibly be you will never get arrested you'll never go to jail you can do whatever the fuck you want but if you are poor you are absolutely in an authoritarian hellhole All right. Well, first off here, let's just make something really clear is a lot of like the dictatorships that we see, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, are propped up by the fucking United States because we have to keep people in power there that will put the thumb on their populace, respectively, to get products to the Northern Hemisphere because colonialism is still very much a thing. So despite all of this fear mongering for, you know, dictators, we're supporting motherfucking probably more than half of them. The other thing that I would say is, again, with the fear of authoritarianism, and I'm an anarchist, okay? 
I don't want anybody telling me what to do at any time. But I will say this, we have to question what exactly is this American ideal of freedom? Is it choosing between fucking 12 brands of toothbrushes? Is it being able to say <laughs> like, well, I can have a McDonald's every three miles. Yeah. Is that freedom or is freedom being able to say like, if I break my leg, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> like health wise and what, financially. Let me tell you what freedom is, brother. <laughs> freedom is going to a store without a mask. That's what freedom is. Freedom is to spread COVID to everybody you know. <laughs> That's what freedom is, brother. If God says you. it's your time, it's your time. It's your time, brother. We got Cosper on after all. Yeah, right? Tommy, you got to do Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, God. If it comes up natural. If, it, if Joe Biden comes up. If, if, if it right. comes up natural. This reminds me of an onion meme going around right now. It's a picture of this woman with like a head rag and like blood all over going down her nose. And it says severely injured woman heroically fights off paramedics trying to force her into medical debt. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I don't want to start an ideological dumpster fire. but yeah. I'm glad there's, there's, <laughs> Or do I, you? I, I, once, once, once she also said that, so like, I'm an authoritarian communist, but I'm glad that Jared said he's an anarchist because I would like to work together. <laughs> But yes. I think that going back to the historical thing, like the dangers of this authoritarian label, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate when people try to compare the run up to like the last free and open election in Germany in 1933 to like anything that's going on in America <laughs> right now. There's much more nuance. But one thing that was a problem was that for many different reasons, I'm not blaming one side or another, that any aspect of the three arrows, whatever, I don't know what they were called, strike force and yeah, the yeah. anti-fascist action not being able to work together to be like, hey, these Nazis are bad. And obviously I know there's problems. There's problems with the common turn. There are problems with the social democratic party. There are problems like could not get it together. And Hitler was like, all right, cool. I'm going to come do my thing. But like the problem with just labeling everything authoritarian. And then also the problem with labeling everything fascist is that everything is watered down to the point where like everyone's getting called names and no one could work together. Yep. And no one could try to be like, hey, that dude over there with the weird mustache wants to kill all the Jews. We should probably focus on him. <laughs> no, fuck you. You, uh, you want collectivized farms. They're like, no, fuck you. You uh, don't want collectivized farms. And it's just like, yeah. throw your hands up. It's like, fuck it. But yeah, it's just, I really hate totalitarian and authoritarian terms when like, especially liberals throw yep. that out there because it's just like, it's just a massive eye roll. And I'm just like, y'all have... Because they have no idea what the fuck it even means. Yeah, yeah. It'd be one thing if they were using it accurately. Yeah. I'd be totally okay with that. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's just like someone who's like stroke out. Just be like, I'm done. Yeah. They think using that term just shuts down the whole argument. I really wish that the right calling liberals communists, I wish that would create an opening for a real communist to just take over. Wouldn't that be fucking fantastic? Yeah. Like if somebody actually just started saying communist and Maoist shit. And just took the presidency <laughs> because they took advantage of the vacuum by the delusion of everyone calling everything they don't like socialist. No, comrade Trump is trying to give us 2K now, right? Oh, fucking yeah. hell. That was, <laughs> oh, God. that was like a huge fear that like Trump and the Republicans will outflight the Democrats on the left and become like this far right workers party. I know. Yeah. yeah, I posted on Facebook and all my liberal friends just bashed me because I was like, Trump is literally doing more than the fucking <laughs> liberals are right now. And the liberals are oh, oh, blah, man. blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, to accept the fucking olive branch. Like, what yeah. the fuck's wrong with you? Play him at his own yeah. game. <laughs> Jump it up to 3,000. Right. <laughs> Joe Biden's going to help us, y'all. It's going to be good. <laughs> I wish I could talk to Joe Biden right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you want it too bad. I've known you for like 15 years now. You know I'm a child. <laughs> all right, all right. Let me, let me circle back and get through these uh, vocabularies so that Mike can get to it. So the, the next one I have is dictator. Uh, ruler with total power over a country. Typically one who obtains it by force. And so I, I like to bring this up because the last one did try to compare it to Stalin. And though obviously the Russian Revolution was by force, Stalin did not have total power over the country. And that leads us into totalitarianism, a concept for a form of government or political system that prohibits oppositional parties, restricts individual opposition to the state and its claims, and exercises an extremely high degree of control over public or private life. Also, a system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. So basically totalitarianism is is kind of similar to authoritarianism in a sense that, you know, it does kind of have ultimate say so in, in what is and is not allowed within a country, but also totalitarianism typically means that one person or one body has the ultimate say so, which I'm going to jump into Soviet democracy and why that's not totalitarianism. In a sense, most people think of Stalin and even the Communist Party as having the ultimate control over the USSR, but that's actually not the case. What is the freedom that you don't have under Soviet democracy? The freedom to have a business and exploit a bunch of workers? Exactly. The freedom to be a fucking Nazi? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So Soviet democracy under Stalin, the process begins when the workers of a city elect their local Soviet. Each workplace district or barracks elects a delegate to represent them or a soviet who convene in a local assembly the body holds both legislative and executive power for that city local soviets may also elect delegates for a higher level council these soviets can continue to elect councils above itself for each administrative district each soviet has legislative executive power over the territory it governs each soviet then elects and forms the congress of soviets once you know they, they basically just keeps going up similar to kind of how we have but we really just have the house of representatives in the senate then the president's office is kind of a, the triangle we have but this is basically saying like the soviets started a very small level either at at a uh, workplace either at a local community or a barracks and then they appoint someone above them and it, it turns into this very high tiering system which the Congress of Soviets is also the supreme governing body of the nation. This may also be called the Supreme Soviet or the National Soviet. The Congress of Soviets is formed up by delegates elected by each Soviet who all convene in a general assembly to govern. The Congress of Soviets can make laws can manage the economy, can run public utilities. It is not just an economic body, and it acts as the nation's government. So that's a big difference between Soviet democracy and what we have here, is since it is so tiered at a very low level, they can start affecting the very top of the Congress of Soviets. It's not just these people at the top get to make up every fucking decision, a, the people at the very bottom, the Soviets at the very bottom, are already enacting local rules, laws, and governance. And then at every level above, not only do they then have a wider area where they can enact laws and rules of governance, they are then choosing who is above them. So it, 
it's way more democratic than what we have here, which is a very small tiered system. So the reason I bring up Soviet democracy is just to explain that even some of these websites, like I was saying, uh, I think it was vocabulary.com, it defines authoritarianism and compares it exactly to what they call Stalinism. But the very democratic system that Stalin pushed even further than Lenin did, than all of his predecessors, was the complete opposite of what they're calling Stalinism. And, you know, just jumping into a few other ones really quick, you know, nationalism for our listeners who I'm sure nationalism and ultranationalism get thrown around a lot. Those are just identification with one's own nation and support for its interest, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interest of other nations. So that basically means if I am a nationalist in America, I want to do whatever helps America, especially if it's to the detriment of another country or another group of people. Another good one, egalitarianism, which I'm sure you people have heard. This is a good one. I know we've only done bad ones so far, but egalitarianism mm -hmm. is a school of thought within a political philosophy that builds from the concept of a social equality, prioritizing it for all people. Egalitarian doctrines are generally characterized by the idea that all humans are equal in fundamental worth and moral status. And I got a few other ones, but maybe we'll circle back to those later because they're not nearly as important. I feel like I've already taken up enough of this block. No, I think those are all really good points. And I think they're all very good definitions that we need to set out. I think the only other thing we could probably set out at the beginning, but I think we'll get to it probably at length later would be that the Nazis were not socialists. Yeah. Yes, for whatever correct. they may have in their name. I don't think it really needs to be said too much. Fascism is a far right position. You can't have fascism of the left. Correct. It just doesn't work that way. There's just a common theme going on here. And I think in summary, I forget who this quote is from, but the first step to taking away someone's freedom is to take away the power of their words. And everything that we've covered just now, it touches on something really important, and that's that Americans don't know the power of their words or what any of them even yeah. fucking mean. And it goes so deep that even if we look at, like, let's say, gun control, conservatives are pro-gun, liberals are against guns, even that etymology is ridiculous. Logically, if someone were conservative about gun laws, they would want to enact more of them. If they were liberal about gun laws, they would want to have less of them. And even though this seems like such a trivial thing, and mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like it matters, it slowly chips away at that political reasoning that you need to have to be an effective citizen, even, even more so someone who can affect change. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so going on a little more here, let's go over some of the uh, false equivalencies. The right, they like to equivocate protests with Kristallnacht. I frequently hear that brought up. They will equate any kind of protest, whether it's a BLM action or an anti-fascist action. So we're going to also encounter this point. A lot of what we are dealing with here comes out of sheer ignorance. Just like Sterling is explaining the very basics of Soviet democracy, and just hearing that will probably shed a lot of light on why it wasn't the authoritarian dystopia that people would be led to believe by Western propaganda. If you know even the basics of history, a lot of these things will really fall away, whatever lies and disillusions you've been led to believe. So they will equivocate the protests with things like Kristallnacht. Uh, they will equivocate canceling racists or people who are bigots with the silencing of Jews and marginalized people during the Nazi regime. Or they will equivocate deplatforming these racists and these bigots with book burning. And that's definitely one that I hear a lot. Like if you hear people saying that they don't have the freedom to just say on a platform that trans people are mentally ill based on this flawed biology book from 30 years ago that has now been updated and is not even relevant anymore. They think that they are some persecuted minority 
for not being able to say that. And it really just goes into the idea that we are supposed to live in this society where the better ideas win out and they destroy the old ideas as we discover new information and we advance in science and technology and everything. And that's really what fascists and the right and conservatives generally are trying to do. They're trying to conserve the old methods, whether or not they are correct and in line with updated science and modernity. So that's another false equivalence that they're trying to make. They're trying to always pretend that they are the persecuted, protected class when they are really just trying to spew ignorance. And it really should just betray the lie to anyone on the right who says the way to combat these ideas is with better ideas, not by silencing them. And it's like, well, we've done that. We've got the better ideas. We've been pushing them all the time. And you just say that you're being silenced by the liberal media when you don't like those ideas. They'll challenge something that gender is a fluid concept and they'll be like, but let me tell you about the lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all ears. <laughs> What's up, Nelson? Who the fuck said protests were the equal equivalent to crystal knock? That person needs to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> this, is why, this is why I'm top left. Like This is why I'm authoritative. Well, you know, because if you smash a business, whether it's a agent provocateur who's like an undercover police officer who's there to demonize a protest and get the police to act out in violence against them, and they smash a Starbucks window, that's exactly the same as the Nazi regime on the guidance of the state itself, <laughs> smashing up Jewish-owned businesses. It's exactly the same thing. There is no difference whatsoever, right? I can't find the difference yeah. for the life nope. of me. <laughs> As a Jew, I can oh. confirm this. <laughs> All windows are bastards. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I agree with what you said about the conservatives I'm always right. playing the victim. But by nature of them being conservative, they are the reactionaries. They always have to play this defense against progressive ideas and progress. Yeah. Where did I cut out? Because uh, you guys froze. My, my Wi-Fi didn't like me talking about uh, shooting people. You said this is exactly why I'm authoritarian communist. Oh, okay. And I, I thought that was a good enough statement alone. I thought you were done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say this is why this is, people need to be shot. Like anyone who equates BLM protests to like Chris or not. Yeah. Then I like reference the scene from Death of Stalin, but that shit's fucking wild. Anyone who is that ignorant to what Crystal Knot was is just, it's mind boggling. I don't me. know what it was. If you want to give us a, a quick rundown, that's actually something I'm ignorant of. I mean, I mean, ignorant is like in a negative sense. But to me, it's like positive ignorance. Like people who just don't know that was negative. I just don't know. Yeah. If, if you want to help give our listeners a little something. Oh, it's like, yeah. Crystal Knot translates to the Night of Broken Glass where basically brown shirts went around and just destroyed Jewish-owned businesses. Okay. Just looted and pillaged and killed and disappeared a number. I'm not really sure if it was in, all throughout Germany or just in Berlin, but basically the night of broken glass that went through, because they already targeted Jewish businesses. A huge difference between the two and why you can't even equate them is, one, they're attacking businesses because they're owned by Jews, and then any time you see Black Block or like any sort of protest like that, it's like only a brick to a Starbucks because they've driven up rent prices yeah. so that like black people had to move out of that neighborhood now. Yeah. They're destroying businesses that gentrify. But like a thing that they did is they already had brown shirts in front of these businesses, even before Christmas, telling people like, hey, Jews own this business, don't shop here. Good Germans, Aryan Germans don't shop at Jewish owned businesses. They would harass and intimidate Jewish owners of these businesses and Jewish customers and anyone who looked Jewish. So to even say that Crystal Knot is anyway the same as any sort of protest we see in America is ridiculous. I would equate Crystal Knot more to like reopen the economy bullshit that the far right does because they're literally intimidating people to like get their way in this overwhelming physical violence towards people, right? 
trying to bust into government buildings. We all know they want to shoot the politicians that want to keep the government shut down to protect people. But like that sort of violence to me is more in line with what Chris Lamont was all about than like anything that like Black Bloc yeah. be for anything. And even that sounds like a stretch, let alone Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It's like Black Lives Matter protests. Is just, I don't even see how like, anyone could use that. I don't see how anyone could say that like because because glass was broken. <laughs> oh yeah, it's say, direct transformation. Real quick, <laughs> I will say the only time I really see that is like on Reddit or Instagram arguing with idiots, you know, as I tend to do. But if you really wanted to see an equivalent <laughs> to Crystal Knock today, it would be the police themselves. It would be the state-sanctioned violence. Yeah. It would be like the police aligning with the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters to go into a neighborhood and destroy all the black-owned businesses or all the yeah. businesses oh. owned by LGBT people. That's that would fair. be the equivalent That's today. Fair. So if we don't see oh, that, it is not equivalent yeah. to Kristallnacht at all. Exactly what the Proud Boys did. Yes, it is exactly what they did just recently. I mean, we'll see January 6th. It may happen again. So, Tommy, what would you say? Like dropping a bomb on a city and having the whole country back you. Yes, in a, oh, yeah. a certain state that starts <laughs> yeah. with an O. <laughs> All right, so I guess I'll continue here. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the false equivalencies that I tend to see a lot. I think we've already covered calling the Nazis socialists. Just to reiterate that one more time, the Nazis were for privatization of businesses, so that is not socialist in any way whatsoever. And obviously there's the Night of the Long Knives. That's usually another thing I wanted to mention at the beginning of this episode that I forgot was just, I would like to give people talking points to counter these arguments that we get. Like we know that we are encountering fallacious arguments when we are talking to people online who are especially on the right. They're either ignorant or they're lying. That's really the only two places they could come from. So this is hopefully going to give people ways to counter those false talking points. If not, illuminate them for yourselves. By the way, I wish for the listeners they could see Nelson. This guy is like a walking emoji. I love it. His reactions are really making this episode for me tonight. <laughs> Did someone actually compare Night of the Long Knives to BLM protests? No, no. I mentioned the Night of the Long Knives oh, when people okay. called the Nazis socialists because that was when the Nazis oh. killed the socialists. Any socialists yeah, that yeah, were remaining exactly. in the Nazi party were taken out on the Night of the Long Knives oh. by Hitler and his comrades. So that's the argument I've used against people to prevent the Nazis were socialist kind of bullshit from even taking a foothold in the Thank discussion. You. I was literally about to have a heart attack if someone like... No, I can see you. I can see you were getting stressed, man. <laughs> Aneurysm. <laughs> what you got, Jaron? Well, you know, again, we're talking about fascism being something that's very, very privy to private industry, taking advantage of private industry and capitalism in general. One of the turning points for me, you know, learning about the history of my ancestors, Judaism, America, is discovering the links between Wall Street and the Third Reich, which really hit me pretty powerfully. Even Prescott Bush, a bunch of fucking people on Wall Street from the 1920s and onward were investing actively in Hitler's war machine well into the beginnings of World War II, including but not limited to IG Farben, which manufactured Zyklon B, which was the gas that they used on the Jews. So quite literally, when they were gassing my ancestors, um, they were doing so with American money. Mm -hmm. You want to know uh, one of the worst? I read this book, this book by Edwin Black, IBM and the Holocaust, and how like IBM yeah, basically helped them organize the Holocaust. They have like empirical statistical yep. evidence that showed that like, especially in Western Europe, how IBM made the Holocaust so much more efficient. Yeah. Absolutely just ridiculous. Damn. And how like the IBM tabulation machine was in the Holocaust Museum in D.C. for a long time. That's when Evan Black first saw it. And then when his book came out, I think they took it away because they were like, oh, shit. People found out. Mm -hmm. Oops. 
That's so crazy you mentioned that. I picked up that book on a whim back when bookstores were still a thing before Amazon came around. And when I was in high school and I just happened to read it and I had no idea this even existed. But the first computers were used for the Holocaust to organize shipping Jews on trains to make the schedules. And it was when they had these punch card machines. They were like these rudimentary computers where you'd have these cards that had all these holes in them and you would run them through these machines. And that's how they kept track of all the Jews and all the people they were killing. The tattoos that you see for the victims at Auschwitz, those correlate to a punch card machine. So the numbers meant something and that was tabulated on those punch card machines. So like a number meant, oh, you're Jewish, you're from somewhere, what gender, if you're a trade and Mm. how long you're supposed to live, things like that. It was absolutely insane. Wow. That book will, like, you cannot give the benefit of the doubt to IBM. They knew exactly what was happening. They knew full well from start to finish. You can't even say that they were just trying to go after profits and they were looking the other way. They knew exactly what they were taking part in. Damn. This was a really pivotal point for me learning about a lot of this stuff. And it set me definitely down the path of where I'm at today. One of the things that it made me think about is we do have a lot of focus in modern society on the Holocaust and on World War II and things like that. And it made me consider further the Holocausts that we do not talk about, that we do not celebrate, that have been lost more or less in the dredges of history. And even though the Holocaust is special for me because it relates to where I came from, it's notable to think about like, you know, when we're talking about the occupation of the Congo and the genocide that took place there, that was absolutely a Holocaust. When we talk about the Mm -hmm. Armenian genocide, that was absolutely a Holocaust. And there's a common thread for all of these throughout history. And that is right wing politics. Yeah, well put. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just that we tend to know the most about the Holocaust. I mean, we all are growing up in America, seeing the History Channel, seeing the movies that Western culture produces. And World War II is probably one of the biggest themes if you're going to get into history, because it was probably the last remotely just war that America fought. So, of course, it's going to be, you know, one that gets a lot of movies made out of it to make us look like the good guys. It would have been far more just if we didn't fund them in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, right. I did see a right-wing meme one time that tried to say King Leopold was a socialist. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) I shit you not. It was like putting up like Stalin, like the evils of socialism what? and communism. It was like King Leopold of Belgium, 10 million dead in the Congo socialist. Like, what the fuck? That had to have been a prayer you mean. <laughs> Radical abolitionist and John Brown. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what I think is unique about yeah. the Nazi Holocaust versus the others that Jaron named is that the Nazi Holocaust is just the most susceptible to propagandize. Is propagandize a word? I think you guys get the point I'm trying yeah, to make. It is now. Okay, excellent. Yeah. It is now. Um, it's it's the easiest one to turn into propaganda to use as Cold War fodder. It's just perfect for this anti-communist, anti-socialist agenda. I mean, hell, again, they had it in the name. It's that fucking easy for them to try to make the Holocaust as the happening of a communist or socialist agenda. And I just think that's what's different. And that's why the United States wants to highlight it in our educational system, because they can paint it as the exact opposite of capitalism and turn the Holocaust not into a canonizing of history, but into a canonizing of the dangers of communism. Yeah. When in reality, if you look into the history of, you know, the Cold War, it really is that right after World War II ended, 
America realized that communism was the next force to fight if they wanted to preserve capitalism. They realized that communism was something that could beat out capitalism if it was allowed to take hold. And they realized they had to fight it in every way possible because they were making so many advancements so quickly. Again, when I talk to people on the right who try to say, communists kill billions, everybody, you know, communists no food, communism fails every time it's tried or whatever. I just say like, communism lifted more people out of poverty in the 20th century than any other system, including capitalism. And the Soviet Union went from being in agrarian feudal lands to becoming a fully industrialized nation competing with the U.S. in the space race in less than one generation. And they did it while fighting multiple wars, including beating the fucking Nazis. Yeah. So if that doesn't tell you that communism works, I don't know what else to tell you. And technically winning yeah. the space race. Yeah. yeah. Would you have there, Nelson? Like a point to like how the U.S. quickly realized that was that uh, Patton is quoted in wanting to literally rearm the Wehrmacht and have the U.S. invade the Soviet Union right after the war. Like he was, <laughs> yeah. before he died, he literally wanted to say, hey, Nazis, let's go fight the Russians. So I'm yeah. just like, I just can't even imagine like how crazy that idea is that this fascist force literally just decimated Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And then you want to rearm them and then send them back under the American flag. It's just like, what the flying fuck? I'm glad that bastard died in that Jeep accident. Because, you know, <laughs> the funny thing is, is we... We ended up doing that, man. We ended up doing more or less that exact thing because of Operation Gladio. The Operation yeah. Gladio was a ton of clandestine sleeper cells of the craziest, most right-wing fuckers we could find in Europe, respective to whatever region, specifically put into place so that if the Soviet Union tried to expand, they would raise hell. Actually, that ties into uh, anti-fascism very well because... They would clash these Gladio people with the local anti-fascists all the time because they were just raring to go and hurt as many people as possible. And the United States, if you haven't done it before, Wikipedia, Operation Gladio, it's part of like FOIA releases at this point. But yeah, yeah. it is a testament to like, yeah, we did actually continue arming the Nazis after the Nazis were gone, which is a pretty impressive fucking feat. <laughs> yeah. We did a whole episode on Nazis on the moon. And basically how Operation Paperclip, we brought them all over, Wonder von Braun, mm -hmm. et cetera, basically built our space race. Yeah, it's fucking wild. Yeah, I was just going to take a second and recommend uh, the Chapo episode on Operation Gladio. That's one of the episodes where uh, their Matt Chrisman, he does one of his version of drunk history. They call it the inebriated past. And he just goes through all of Operation Gladio. And dude, it's great. I didn't know anything about it until I heard that episode and I was blown away. I mean, the big takeaway is that anti-communism is fascism. Anybody who identifies as an anti-communist, they are cool with fascism at the very at least. At the least. At the very least, they will go towards fascism if given the choice. If you give them the choice to align with fascist or communist, they will pick fascism every time. And not because of education. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you also have Operation Bloodstone, where CIA sought out Nazis and Nazi collaborators that are living in Soviet-controlled areas like uh, Latin America and in the Soviet Union to work with the CIA to undermine communist interests. Wow, that's the first I've ever heard of that one. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, Operation Bloodstone. I'll have to check that out. We also funded the Mujahideen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I always love the beginning of that Rambo movie where they say that they were like the freedom fighters. Like, which one was it? The first one? Podcast is dedicated to the brave fighters. The Mujahideen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as long as we're still talking about Hitler and, you know, the Nazis, I will just use this to outline another point that I made here. The idea that resisting far-right authoritarianism is fascism is laughable. Uh, we've already discussed it at length at this point, but to resist far-right authoritarianism, to resist fascism, to call that fascism is just so laughable on its face that it shouldn't even be an argument. It shouldn't even be something that anybody says. And it only is because 
like I said, people are either uneducated or they're lying. Here's a quote from Hitler himself. Only one thing could have broken our movement. If the adversary had understood its principle and from the first day had smashed with most extreme brutality the nucleus of our new movement. So Hitler recognized right away that if there had been a real anti-fascist movement like we see here in America, people who are willing to get out in the streets and protest when they see fascism bubbling up, that would have been the one thing that could have stopped them. And that's what you have to realize what is happening with Antifa, Black Bloc, BLM, whatever anti-fascist group you see protesting the rise of the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and all these guys waving their libertarian flags. They know what they're doing. They are resisting fascism at its root because that's the only way you can do it. Once it starts to gain power, it's too late. Oh, I also wanted to mention Richard Spencer himself has admitted that the far right takes advantage of the free speech cause to spread their fascist rhetoric. There is video of him saying that he doesn't actually believe in free speech and he knowingly, him and all his movement, they knowingly take advantage of liberals and their soft spot for free speech to be able to platform their rhetoric. Again, this goes back to the idea that you should counter bad ideas with good ideas. I don't think we need to say any more about why fascism is bad. I think we should know as a country at this point that it is bad to exterminate Jews, to exterminate people of color, to exterminate the LGBT community. I don't feel like that needs to be said. I feel like that idea should be conquered already. But the fact that we are not past that as a society really says something about what the USA is cool with, whether it's more yeah. cool with fascism or communism or anti-fascism. Go ahead, Nelson. So there's a really good book I also read, and I got to actually meet the author. Really cool guy. He's from Europe and he's a reporter and he moved to America and he wrote this book, Everything You Love Will Burn, The Rise of White Nationalism in the Far Right in the United States. Everything You Love Will Burn is the main title. The author's name, uh, his first name is Vegas. Basically what he did is he followed for a year Matthew Heinbach in the rise of the traditional workers party and was with him throughout his rise, like recording everything and taking notes and building this book. And like the way that Heinbach, this is before the trailer park implosion and before the sex scandal that basically doomed the traditional workers party that had not happened the final end of the book spoiler alert is matthew heinbach like being cheered by like 200 supporters at this rally that he had been able to get together and it takes him the rise of like him just being a nobody to like the rise of the workers party the traditional workers party as a force that like probably could have been something what he did was he was able to bring together different elements of the far right under this banner of the traditional workers party and just like tailoring his message to like what quote unquote white working class Americans want to hear to try to suck them away from any sort of left wing notion of politics into this fascist element. And like, I'm even like, we got to be scared. We're fascist. And that whole thing at the end, like people just cheering him. It's just crazy that like America could so easily be swayed. Like we said, we've had elements of fascism since our inception, but to be completely swayed by a full on fascism, and how people will cheer for it is astonishing. A lot of it has to do with the Democratic Party sucks. And like they haven't yeah. done anything for anybody in the longest time. So the, the yeah. minute people hear the slightest populist message, people are going to grab hold and take root, whether it's true or not, whether it's based in racism or whatever bullshit that he had going on. It doesn't matter. People will cling to that because that's what they want to hear. And the Democratic Party can't understand that and don't and won't realize that populism will win. Populism will take hold. Just do something. Based. 
I just want to say one thing real quick. The Democratic Party certainly does achieve objectives for some people. It's just that's a very specific minority. And Mike's made a point of this in the past. We don't want to paint the Democrats as just ignorant and not accomplishing any goals and just completely without ability to do anything. Because the truth is they are basically accomplishing exactly what they're out to accomplish, exactly what they're designed I think everyone at this point understands the ratchet effect. The Democrats are just the controlled opposition. They're doing exactly what they are designed and, and intend to do. Yeah, I think, Tommy, you make a really good point by the Democrats being enablers of fascism. And it works in two ways. If you are brought up to think that everything the Democrats are doing is socialism, well, then, of course, you're going to gravitate <laughs> towards anti-socialism or anti-communism because what yeah. they're doing sucks. They're not helping anyone. They're not doing anything good for you. And then, of course, when you hear a populist message, you are going to gravitate towards that. And it's going to take hold, especially because they are so far from being able to achieve what they want, the fascist, that is, because what they want is this version of what they call anti-capitalism. But if you actually get them to describe it, and like I'm actually pretty familiar with this guy, Matthew Heinbach, that you were talking about, Nelson, because uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, I Don't Speak German. I was actually going to ask you to elaborate on that because from what I thought, he was still at it. Like I've heard more about this workers party. I thought that they had a rally fairly recently. I was going to ask you some more about that in a second. But what I wanted to get at was that if you hear someone who has an actual populist message, especially when it's someone like the far right, who is very far off from being able to achieve this version of populism where it only includes white men, it only includes people that they like then of course you're going to gravitate towards that, especially if you feel like you have had your privileged position taken away from you over the entire course of your life. Like if you are some middle-aged white boomer, you're going to feel like this is the message that finally does speak to you. So I understand why people are gravitating towards that rather than the Democrats, because the Democrats, one, they could actually achieve what they want. They could actually get like Medicare for all in the next 10 years. They could actually get slightly higher taxes on some billionaires or whatever, but that's still not going to solve the issues that are at the core of capitalism that are driving this inequality and the desperation that we see in the working classes. So if somebody comes along and says that they actually have the solution for that and it's a drastic change, then yeah, I mean, a bunch of white guys who are conservatives and already are kind of racist are going to gravitate towards that. But to ask you a little more, Nelson, when did that happen? Because I was under the impression that he was still going on. Like I heard not too long ago, I was listening to, again, like I said, the I Don't Speak German podcast. And what they do is literally just follow the far right and listen to their podcast, their rallies and everything. And they had, a, I thought that it was him that had a rally in like a barn somewhere in Pennsylvania where they had a couple hundred dudes and you could hear like they were just openly saying they were fascists and that their plan going forward is to recruit the jilted Bernie bros who were pissed off the Democrats for cheating Bernie. I don't think they're going to get very far with that because I think anybody who is following Bernie is probably left enough that they recognize fascism when they see it and they're not going to gravitate to it. I could be wrong. I would know. No. Okay, so the book, I think, came out right after Trump got elected. I remember talking to the author, I think, about the whole trailer park brawl. Basically, if you don't know, Matthew Hanbach got caught having an affair with his second-in-command's wife, I think, what happened. Ah, uh, nice. Was Hot. Trailer park brawl, rolled in tired, brother. But, um, and classy. What you just described kind of sounds like the end of the book. I don't know the timeline. I think I'm actually confusing you. I think it's not actually uh, Matthew Hanbach. I think it's Mike Enoch. Mike Enoch oh, okay. is another figure on the far right who is leading proto-fascist rallies now of the, what is Word. it called, the What Workers' Party? Traditionalist Workers' Ethnos, Party. The TWP, the Traditional Workers' Party. I think it's Mike Enoch, whose real name is Mike Pinovich, and he is one of the far right figureheads now as far as the real neo-Nazis are concerned. 
Okay. Because after the trailer park brawl, I think the website got taken down and they split into different factions that are now defunct or whatnot. And then uh, Heimach got accused of being a stressors and not being an actual, like, Hitler yeah. national Not being Nazi here. enough. Yeah, he's not he's being that what was for a, a little tiny bit in their history, a quote-unquote left wing of the Nazi party that was taken out during the Night of the Long Night. Yeah. So he got accused of being a stressors. If people think leftist infighting is bad, right wing <laughs> infighting is just as bad. Yeah. And it's no, dude, I was actually going to say when you were saying that, that is the one thing that the far left and far right have in common is the infighting. But the difference is that the far left will fight over ideas and concepts. Like we will fight over how to best implement communism, whereas the far right will fight because one of their wives is like a quarter Jewish or something. Like they will fight <laughs> endlessly over that shit. Like. <laughs> So I've gotten through most of the stuff that I brought as far as the outline is concerned. I did sort of want to mention in the way of historical events, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of liberals sort of enabling or outright aligning with fascism when the opportunity presents itself, because at the end of the day, they will choose to keep their position of privilege and their money and their property if they think it's going to be collectivized away from them. And again, this gets into the distinction that we made last week's episode between private versus personal property. And if you could scare liberals enough to think that their house and their toothbrush will be taken away if the socialists take over, then they will align with the fascists, even though most of them don't own businesses, most of them don't own factories, most of them are not capitalists per se. They are just workers who align with capitalists because they don't understand the definitions of things. But the point is that liberals a lot of times will more readily align with fascists if they think that they have something to lose personally, or if they think that they have more to gain if they align with the fascists. But I did kind of want to touch on, I mean, at the risk of enraging Nelson, but I did want to talk a little bit about the party switch and the Dixiecrats. Because if you talk to people on the right, that is one of their main harping points. You get people like Dinesh D'Souza. I don't know if Ben Shapiro does this kind of thing, but they will talk about, oh, there you go. He's got a relevant book, The Rise of the Southern Republicans by Carl Black and Merle Black, or sorry, Earl Black. Yeah, Merle and Earl, the Black brothers. Okay, cool. So I did want to talk just a little bit about the party switch. And that seems to be a really common narrative that I see among right-wingers now. They say that Democrats are the party of slavery. <laughs> the Democrats are the party of this and that and the party of racism. And I'm like, uh, you're almost right in some weird ways because the Democrats are perfectly cool with racism if they think it can get them what they want. But also the party switch definitely is a thing that did happen. The Dixiecrats were absolutely the racist ones and they were the conservatives at the time. And there were over 200 Democrat politicians who switched parties when this whole party switch sort of started to happen. But we can talk a little bit more about that. I think you guys are a little more historically literate, probably Jaron and Nelson and Tommy than I am. I just think that that is a ridiculous narrative that needs to be done away with. And I was actually kind of disappointed when I started Googling, trying to find a list of the names of the Democrats who switched parties. If you just Google party switch, all of the first results that come up are far right websites that say the party switch was a myth. That's the presence that they've gained online. Like they are really trying to push that out there, that it's some kind of myth and that the Democrats are and have always been the real racist, which is hilarious because you now see Proud Boys and Trump supporting Republicans marching with fascists, marching with Nazi flags, doing racist shit. And also just the irony of them being mad at people who take down Confederate statues. Like if the Democrats were the real racists, well, then let the Democrats take down those statues, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I just got out of my Southern politics class last semester. We're actually going to do an episode on the Sharecroppers Union. It's a really interesting topic. But no, the, this book, The Rise of the Southern Republican, if you read this, it was published before the Democratic Party was basically decimated in 2010 in the South. So at the end, it's kind of like idealistic, like, oh, now we have a competitive system, blah, blah. There's a coalition of a few white liberals and black voters make up the Democratic Party in the South, and then all the white people went to the Republicans. And now we can have competitive elections, and then it's just really sad because you know what happens in 2010 that just completely dies. But mm -hmm. um, 
No, the party switch empirically happened. We have statistics to prove it. I hate statistics with a burning passion, but like this book is chock full of graphs and charts and variables and everything that you need to see that like the party switched. It started in the Rim South, started with uh, Tennessee, I think in 1920 was the first Southern state to vote Republican. I think it was Hoover versus whoever he was running against. The Rim South broke and voted for the Republican over the fact that the Democrat that year was a Catholic and he was against prohibition. So you see fracturing there. The big first crack was in 48 when Truman integrated the army. You actually had the Dixiecrats break away from the Democratic Party and have a convention in Birmingham and nominate Strom Thurmond to run for president that year. Then obviously you had LBJ with the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. But that brings up the election in 1964 and Republican Barry Goldwater won the Deep South. He actually came to Montgomery and he had a huge rally at Crampton Bowl with this magnificent, ungodly type rally where he literally you could not separate what he was saying from like racist southern democrats as a republican mm -hmm. he is up there saying states rights states rights integration is bad and whatnot brown versus board is the worst thing to happen states should be able to choose etc and white southerners ate it up and then that's you start seeing from the top down this movement of what used to be white southern democrats flocking the Republican Party. One notably in Alabama, Richard Shelby was a Democrat. And then in the eighties he switched parties to the Republicans. And like you see it the late eighties and the nineties, these Democrats start switching to Republican. And it culminates to nineteen ninety four with Newt Gingrich and the Southern strategy's culmination of Newt Gingrich like and then taking back the House. Since I think nineteen forty eight to nineteen ninety four the Democrats had the House. So like Newt Gingrich said, I'm gonna read this to y'all real quick little quote. Pick which party this is, right? Mm -hmm. People in Cobb don't object to middle-class neighbors who keep their lawns cut, move to areas to avoid crime. What people worry about is the bus line gradually destroying one apartment complex after another, bringing people out of public housing who have no middle-class values and whose kids, as they become teenagers, often are the center of robbery and where schools collapse because the parents who live in the apartment complexes don't care that the kids don't do well in school and the whole school collapses. That's Newt Gingrich in 1994, a Republican. A diehard Republican Jesus. who hated the Democratic Party. Also, their love affair with Reagan. Reagan basically launched his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the side of the three slain civil rights workers, uh, the basis for the movie Mississippi Burning. And apparently his speech was something of envy to white Southern Democratic politicians. Like, we wish we could say that, but we can't anymore. But Reagan just said it. And so... You can't deny the Southern strategy. It starts. It's like Nixon with his law and order with Reagan, with all the top down approach. Like they switched the ideology of what the Democratic Party stood for in the South to the Republican Party of the South. And it's there. It's, it's what Lee Atwater said in his famous, when he got caught on that hot mic, he's just like, in the 50s, you can go around stomping your feet saying the N-word, but by 68, you can't. It hurts you. So you start saying things like busing and states' rights. And then it gets so abstract to the point where you're saying tax cuts, and you know that tax cuts are going to hurt black people more than white people. But at that point, there's no difference from you just going around screaming the N-word. Like anyone who denies the Southern strategy does not know Southern politics because it is statistically, empirically there that the old school Dixiecrat Democratic Party is now the Republican Party, just with a better vocabulary. Let me tell you something, Jack. <laughs> you talk about my friends, Strom Thurmond. <laughs> it's gonna get real hot in here. Let me tell you something, Jack. I work real hard with that man. <laughs> segregate, segregate these buses. I still stand by that. You know who's on that bus? My vice president, Kamala Harris. <laughs> I had to stop her from becoming president. And Corn Pop. Corn Pop tried to get on that bus. 
Well, he was a bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> Listen here, fat. <laughs> I'm so glad we got it out of him. Oh, man. Oh, that was gosh. worth the wait. <laughs> so should we uh, should we tag Corn Pops uh, Twitter? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think he'd be he'd be ecstatic. <laughs> well, at this point, Mike, I'm not sure how much further you want to go. No, I was gonna wrap it up. I was just waiting until we finished talking about the Southern strategy and the party switch. Let's wrap it up there. I know we did have a segment on the hay market affair that we wanted to get to. I believe we can probably make this into a two-parter. What do you think, Sterling? I'm all for it. I mean, I still got about probably 20, 30 minutes worth of material I can plug in next week. All right, cool. Tommy and Nelson, would you guys want to come back next week as well? I'm down. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm free. Tommy, are you free? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be good. Cool, cool. All right, nice. Word. Let's uh, do some plugs. Uh, we're obviously going to plug the Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. Anything else you guys want to plug, Tommy or Nelson? Anything you guys want to mention? Just follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Subscribe to us on Patreon. We got some stuff coming. Right now, we only have like one-time gift offers, but Tommy is trying to set up a Twitch for us, and he's a big gamer, so we're trying to do that. We want to get a Discord going, and then we might start doing Patreon-exclusive episodes. Right now, all of this stuff is out. You can watch. We're going to get like 30-something episodes out on every platform except SoundCloud, because fuck them for a number of reasons. <laughs> but yeah, so just Dixieland the Proletariat. Uh, Southern Working Class History and Current Events from a Leftist Perspective. Yeah, and they are Dixie Prol on Instagram. Just Dixieland of the Proletariat on Facebook is your biggest platform, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. And I will just run through the rest of the plugs real quick. We got Jaron Perlman. That is J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. We got Sterling over here running the Twitter for Turn Leftist. That's Turn Leftist Pod on Twitter. Hell yeah. Uh, Ward Lawley. That's W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y on Instagram. And his backup Millennial Leftist. And as always, I am Turn Leftist on Instagram. So come follow us, check out our shit posts, interact with us, send us some DMs. They're always open. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think of the podcast. Thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, we will pick up and we'll do part two of why Antifa are not the real fascists next week. I had a feeling this would turn into a two-part episode. I'm kind of yeah. glad it did. This was a lot of Me fun. Too. So thank you guys for joining us on that. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Dude, anytime. Yeah. This is fun. Can't wait to do it again next week. I will see you guys next Hell time. Yeah. See you guys. Thanks, everyone. Peace Good to you, comrades. Care.